that last hymn, you know, for years, I used to have like a Xerox copy of just those words. It's an old hymn text written by John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and a lot of other famous hymns. And I've always thought that was just such a remarkable hymn text because so often the songs that we sing really lie to us about the Christian faith. It's been one of my big concerns as a pastor of college students for years is that so many students who've been raised in Christian churches, their idea of what the normal Christian life feels like has been really screwed up in a lot of ways because of the songs that they sing, which are always like these happy, clappy songs that everything is great. And if you actually look at the Bible, if you look at the Psalms, for instance, more than the largest category of Psalms are Psalms of lament and what we might call Psalms of disorientation. Something has happened to make me wonder which side is up with regard to life and faith. And yet we never sing songs like that very much. And so in the Christian church, people feel like I need to pretend that I'm happy all the time to actually enter into worship. And they begin to think of worship as like this emotional release kind of thing where you just escape from reality. Instead, worship should be a place where you bring all of life before the presence of God and either cry or scream or rejoice because God welcomes all of that stuff in worship. So we sing a, a tune like that because we want to be reminded that God has a bigger goal than just getting people to gather in a room and shout aloud. He's wanting to make us more and more like his son. Now, last week we talked about the ultimate goal of God in the gospel. The reason, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, the reason God sent his son was to make us sons and daughters of the living God. Not just to get us out of hell, not just so that we could be his friends, but so that we could actually be adopted into his family. And then Paul goes on and says the reason the Holy Spirit was sent was so that we would feel like sons and daughters. And tonight we're going to look at the next section in Galatians, it's in Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at how God is still at work in us now. Those of us who are in Christ, he's at work to make us look like sons and daughters. And that provokes a lot of groaning. This is a passage about groaning and being perplexed because that is so often what the Christian life is like. You know, when I went off to seminary, I thought I was going to learn the answers to the kinds of questions that I was asked often in ministry. I'd been doing college ministry for a while and certain questions would come up and I thought if I go to seminary, I'll get the answers. And I remember getting out of seminary, coming back to Nashville, and one of the first students that I met that got involved in our group at first began to share some poetry with me that she'd written. It was rather disturbing poetry. Lots of imagery in there about abuse and different things. And it didn't take too long before I got to sit down with her and talk a little bit about her story. And I remember one time in my office, I had the old uh, Windows computer with the little screensaver that like bounced around like that. And it literally sent her into her other personality. It's a girl who had split personality. She would wake up sometimes in another state and not know how she got there. She would write in different handwriting. Showed me her journal where she would write in different handwriting. I could see sometimes when I was preaching, you would see her and you could tell that she was hearing voices because she'd start kind of looking behind her. She'd suffered such traumatic abuse that she literally 
couldn't stay present much of the time. And I remember thinking, I have no idea what to do. I mean, I went to seminary and I learned different things, but I didn't learn about this. I remember it wasn't long after that, another girl in our group, we were sitting at church during the last song, and she went into a catatonic state. She couldn't move. She couldn't blink her eyes. She was just stiff. And I remember some of the other students said, you know, we've got to do something. We had to call the paramedics. I had to pick her up and carry her outside, and I didn't know what to do with that either. You know, I went to seminary to learn how to be a good minister of the gospel, and yet I resonate so much with this passage we're going to look at tonight because Paul has the courage and the freedom to tell these Galatians, these people that he loves so much, that he's perplexed and doesn't know what to do. And I think it actually was the most important thing that they needed to hear. Let's, let's read this passage. And you remember, Paul is talking to people that he had preached the gospel to. He hadn't meant to actually stop in Galatia and preach the gospel. He'd been waylaid because of an illness. And while he was laid up there, he preached the gospel. And these people got converted. And the church grew. And he left. And then he heard a report that some other false teachers had come in after Paul had left and had really distorted the good news of the gospel and the Christian faith and were, had really caused a lot of problems in this church. And Paul hears about it. And Galatians is his letter after he's heard about it. In a day and age where you couldn't just, you know, Skype somebody. Took weeks for the, the report to get to him. Probably took weeks for his report to get back to them. And who knows how long before he found out whether they received the letter, whether it did any good. That's the emotion in the midst of this. And we're going to pick up reading at verse 12 from Galatians chapter 4. Because as you'll see, he starts out pretty emotional. He says, I plead with you, brothers, and it's a, a gender neutral term, brethren, we would say, men and women. So ladies, you're included. I plead with you, brethren, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and give them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. But my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that Paul exposes his heart here and in so doing exposes your heart for your people. We pray that we would be touched and that you would that you would help us to understand your heart as revealed in this passage. 
To that end, send your spirit and open our eyes, open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Groaning as in the pains of childbirth. It's a pretty amazing image. I remember when I was not much older than y'all, the first time I ever visited a friend of mine in the hospital after she had recently given birth. And uh, I don't know medically how to explain this, but I swear that her eyes were bugged out of her head more than normal. I think that's real. I think it really happened. I remember I was completely freaked out. Now, when we had our first child, Wendy and I, um, Cooper was breech, um, footling breech, which meant that his foot could come out first and the cord could come out and he could get suffocated. So we had to have a C-section, right? Now, when you're preparing to have a child, you go to these classes, right, and you learn how to breathe. And just the fact that I was going to have to help my wife breathe was sort of giving me some indication that this was going to be a pretty traumatic thing. Like, you shouldn't have to help people know how to breathe. That just didn't seem right to me. But with a C-section, we didn't have to do all that. Actually, for the husband, the C-section is, is kind of a lot better than 10 hours of trying to help your wife even know how to breathe. And so, um, you know, they, they gave her the epidural, which was no picnic, and she, it hurt her. You know, they stick that needle in, right? And then um, they whisk her off. And then I had to scrub in, and then they bring me in. And by the time they bring me into the operating room, like, it's almost time for them to pull the baby out. They make the incision, and as they start to make the incision, on her surface of her skin, everything's fine. But when they cut into her uterus, she says, I can feel that. And unfortunately, the doctor who could authorize giving her poor pain meds wasn't in the room at the time. They had to go find him. He had to come in. He had to authorize giving her pain meds. All the while, she can feel them cutting into her, her uterus. They gave it into her general anesthesia, right? I know this is a great story, isn't it? And whenever I've told this story, anesthesiologists in the congregation have always wanted me to make sure to tell you that they've solved this now. They think they know how to do this better. Um, but anyway, so they give her this, this anesthesia. It kind of knocks her out where she's real loopy. Uh, for some reason, the doctor, even though it was against Vanderbilt's policy, let me videotape the whole thing. So I was, I have a, this is on video camera, and I can't deny what I said next because it's on film. So they pulled Cooper out of her, you know, body. They set him next to her. There's our boy who's 13 now. She's looking at him kind of going in and out of consciousness. You can see on the video her eyes like rolling back in her head. And you hear me say, well, that wasn't so bad, was it, honey? <laughs> so I don't know if I know very much about the groaning and the pains of childbirth. The, the next time she had a, another C-section and it happened again, even though we told them what happened the first time. So then we adopted. <laughs> And we got a little girl from China. And yeah, so we got Amelia. So mm. that's our story. So last week, adoption. This week, the groaning, uh, the pains of childbirth. But, you know, it's not, a, it's not a pleasant image. It's a really strong graphic image. In other words, Paul is saying life is full of pain. But what's remarkable about this passage is the pain that Paul describes, which feels like the groaning of childbirth was to a large extent self-induced. Do you understand that? You see, Paul did not have to write this letter. Paul could have said, you know, I'm a busy guy. 
I'm an apostle. I've got churches all over the place. I've got people all over the place that would love to have me come minister to them. And you guys, we had a great beginning. Things were going well, but now you've turned against me. Now the relationship is such that if I say anything to you, you think I'm your enemy. And I just don't have time for this. I'm an important guy. I'm a busy guy. You guys are a long ways away. How can I minister to you just writing letters? I can't be there. I wish I could be there, but I can't. So I have to write this letter and throw it out there and pray for you. And I don't even really know what to do or what to say. Paul could have washed his hands of these people and said, I'm going to go minister where it's more fruitful, where people like me, where people honor me and respond well. He's groaning as in the pains of childbirth because he can't do that. Now, I think this is amazing because if you're like me, I think most of us take the path of least resistance in our relationships. I think it's one of the most dangerous things about college. You may feel like you're lonely, and maybe you really are. I don't mean to make light of that, but I'm telling you, College is one of the last times where you can break off friendships for petty reasons and probably find another group of people to hang out with. I think about myself, between the time I went off to college and the time I got married, I had almost 30 different roommates. Now, I didn't get married till I was 33. There were a lot of relationship circles that I was in and then move on to the next, sometimes because of God's providence, moving, they moved, I moved. Sometimes because, yeah, it didn't really work out, didn't really get along, maybe I'll find somebody new. Whatever it is, we tend to take the path of least resistance in our relationships. But Paul doesn't do that here. And he doesn't do that because his goal for these people is so much bigger than the false teachers. And part of the challenge tonight, if you're trying to think about Christianity, I pray that you would understand and have a pastor like Paul. And find a church like Paul. And if you are a Christian, I pray that you would be caught up by this picture of what ministry and love for one another really looks like. Because it doesn't mean taking the path of least resistance in relationships. You see, Paul aches to see Christ formed in them. The false teachers wanted zealous followers. You see that in verse 17? These people, and he's talking about these false teachers that have come in, they want to win you over, but for no good. They want to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. They want zealous followers, and you may think, well, why? And I'll tell you why. Because if these false teachers are believing the quote-unquote gospel that they've been teaching the Galatians, then one thing we know about them is that they must be terribly insecure. How do we know that? Because that's what this false gospel did to the Galatians. It made them terribly insecure. It made them very morbidly introspective, and it made them lose all their joy. Do you see that? In verse 15, Paul says, what's happened to all your joy? When the true gospel came to them, things were very different. He said, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. You treated me not like I was a burden, but like I was an angel, like I was Christ himself. So their life was marked by joy and sacrificial love. But once they began to buy into what the teachers, the false teachers were telling them, now they've lost their joy. They've become Paul's enemy. They're bitter, defenseless, defensive, 
In another place, he'll say that you're biting and devouring one another. Why? What's this teaching that produced that effect? Well, you remember, if you've been tracking with us in Galatians, Paul was zealous to teach them that the smile of God is secured by what Jesus did. As a hymn that we like to sing puts it so well, upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. The heart of the gospel is Christ substitutes for us. The heart of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the heart of the gospel is God substituting himself for man on the cross. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he takes the punishment that those who had tried to usurp God's place deserved. But not only that, he lived the perfect life, obeying where we should have obeyed. And when God looks at us, we get credit in the gospel. God promises to look at us like he looks at Christ. So the insecurity issue is dealt with by the gospel. And that doesn't mean that it automatically fixes your heart. But you have a reference point. There's a great place in, uh, in one of John's letters where he says, when our hearts condemn us, Christ is greater than our hearts. One of the most important things to understand about Christianity is that you have something that can trump even what you think about you, which is what God says about you in the gospel. But if you lose that, and what the false teachers have come in and said is, no, you know, you can become a Christian by grace, but then it's up to you to, to, to live the right way and to do the right things and not do the wrong things. You've got to live that way, and you've got to keep it up so that God will keep smiling at you. And it produced this kind of radical insecurity, like how can I really measure up to God? You know, sometimes talking to students who've been Christians a long time, it's not that they have struggles believing that they could initially become a Christian. The real struggle is, well, how can God still love me in light of how I've lived since I was a Christian? And that's exactly what had happened to these Galatians. These false teachers said, okay, yes, grace got you into this, but now you really have to toe the line. And if you're not, then God is not really happy with you. And if God's not really happy with you and you're not sure of that, it puts this hole in your soul and you try to fill it with all kinds of other things. And you get miserable and you lose your joy and you bite and devour one another. So we know these false teachers want followers. They need followers. They need somebody to prop them up and tell them they're awesome because they're not sure of what God thinks about them because they've lost their ability to be sure as soon as they thought that what they did would affect how God loved them. Like I say, if God or if, you know, Christ's work on the cross plus your obedience equals God's joy, then God's joy will never be a settled issue because you're a constant variable. Okay? And you know, you remember algebra. If there's a variable on this side of the equal sign, then, the, then this is a variable, right? And there's a lot of Christians that practically live that way and in that misery. And that's what has happened. But Paul, Paul <laughs> models something very different. He doesn't need their approval, but he longs for Christ to be formed in them, groans for Christ to be formed in them. And because of that, he stays in this relationship 
even though he doesn't know what to do. Now, as a pastor, I can tell you one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Galatians 4.20, where he says, I am perplexed about you. Because I will tell you, for the most part, ministry feels like groaning and being perplexed. I don't know if that's what you've signed up for. But that's what it is. It really is. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, who do you groan for? If you're a Christian, who do you groan for? Do you groan for Christ to be formed in your parents? Or do you just want them to leave you alone? Or just support all your plans? Do you groan for Christ to be formed in your roommate? Or do you wish you just got along? Do you groan for Christ to be formed in your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Your friends that don't know Jesus? Of course, they got to know Jesus to begin to be formed into the image of Jesus. Groaning is Paul's definition of love. Groaning for Christ to be formed in others. Do you groan for Christ to be formed in others? Do you groan for Christ to be formed in you? You know, I think there are two main reasons why we don't groan for people or ourselves like we should. I'll go through this quickly, but they're worth pointing out. I think the first is, and again, this, this affects, think about ministry, but think about even friendship. Think about relationships with your family. I think so often we value comfort more than God's kingdom. God's kingdom is a huge goal. Our comfort is not such a huge goal. Our goal is too small if we value comfort more than God's kingdom. So, so often we're just content to not make waves, just to try to keep the peace. There's a lot of that in the South, what we call peace fakers rather than peacemakers. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peace fakers. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, woe are you if all men speak well of you. So if your goal is to get everybody to like you and to not make waves, you're at cross purposes with God. And when he pronounces that woe, that's not just... That's not just saying, I'm going to strike you down. It's saying, you're miserable. If everybody speaks well of you, you're miserable because you've denied so much of who you really are. And you know it. I think the second reason we don't groan is we want people's approval more than we want Christ to be formed in them. So our goal can be too small. We just want peace where there is no peace. But sometimes our love is too weak. And when our love is too weak, we just want followers, bigger numbers. We just want friends. But again, what kind of friend will you be? Will you be one who groans for Christ to be formed in your friends? Or will you be one who's merely content with more and more friends and more and more people that like you and speak well of you? And what kind of church will you look for? What kind of ministry, excuse me, what kind of ministry will you put yourself under. If you're seeking worshipers, you can never confront people. But if you're seeking for Christ to be formed in people, you have to confront. You have to. The big question, though, is how will you be set free to do this? One of my favorite professors from seminary used to say the real problem with living the Christian life is not so much figuring out what to do. It's finding the courage to do it. So at one level, I could preach a very discouraging message and say, you understand that the goal of what it means to love one another is so much bigger than you thought? It's not just getting along. It's not just making people happy. It's groaning for Christ to be formed in them. You need to do it. 
But listen, you don't just need to know what to do. You need to find the power and the courage to do it. Because how are you going to be set free from your lust for people to love you and worship you? To think that you're accepting and tolerant and that you're a cool hang even when you're really disturbed by the way they live. What are you going to do? You don't love someone unless you're groaning for Christ to be formed in them. Unless you're willing to sacrifice your own comfort to see Christ formed in them. Even if that means you're going to be groaning and perplexed all the time. Neither our comfort nor their comfort is the goal. And if it is, we're working at cross purposes from God. Sobering. Ministry is about groaning and being perplexed. Um, When I was up in seminary, one of the best classes I took was a hospital counseling class. And in that class, basically, we would um, meet with a professor, about six or seven of us, this little room in the basement of the hospital. They would give us a list of patients with their name, their room number, their age, and their condition, like one to five, but no other details about their condition. And we were supposed to go to the room, knock on the door, ask if they wanted a visit from a chaplain, and then just talk to them and see what would come up. And it was pretty interesting. It was actually pretty depressing in a lot of ways because so many of them were older people whose families and friends didn't visit them, right? And so many of them were angry at God but couldn't admit it. But I do remember one of the very first patients that I tried to talk to was, um, well, she didn't respond when I knocked on the door. I could see she was sitting across the way next to her bed in a chair. I knocked on the door and said, you know, would you like a visit from a chaplain? She didn't respond. I said it a little louder. She was 95, I think. I figured maybe she couldn't really hear me very well. And then I started to take a step into the room, and then she started to freak out. And I I said it again, and I tried to, you know, be a calm voice and took another step toward her, and she started to shriek, and she started to scream. And I stood there for a minute of panic. Then I meekly apologized, turned around, and walked out of the room. Let the nurses deal with it. (laughs) I went back downstairs, visited some other patients that day, but finally went back downstairs, told the professor what had happened, and he said, Kevin, I think your issues got in the way of you ministering God's love to that woman today. I was like, what? Like, I couldn't say anything. She didn't understand anything. She was very advanced dementia. He goes, well, how can you minister God's love to someone who can't understand a word that you can say? It's like, what are you talking about? I'm in seminary. I came to seminary to learn the words. He said, I don't know if this would have worked, but I'm going to encourage you next time, maybe you could have walked over, knelt in front of her, and taken her hand. All the while she's shrieking? Maybe. The point is, I was much more concerned about my comfort, whether the nurses were going to walk in and scream at me, than I was about that poor woman. And, and I hate feeling perplexed. I don't like to groan. I don't know about you. Is that what you've signed up for? Is that what you thought being part of the body of Christ would be like? Are you just looking for a group where you can finally find some friends? I would tell you that God has called RUF to be a place where we groan for Christ to be formed in other people. 
And that means a lot of times you'll feel perplexed. And we can sit down together and talk about it over coffee, and I may not be able to end the perplexment. I might be more perplexed than you. But we're going to be in it. And we're going to groan for Christ to be formed. That's always God's goal. So where are we going to get the courage? Well, here's what I, I, I want to I say to you that I think is so encouraging about this passage. Is we will be free only when we hear who's groaning for us. You know, this reminds me of something I always say in weddings. When, when, when a bride and a groom take these vows, say those vows, they either say them out of naivete or out of faith. And I think the only ways you say them out of naivete or out of faith is if you hear the one who speaks vows to you. Because what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God is that he makes vows to us, vows to love us in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer. And his vows do not end with death. As a matter of fact, his vows were sealed and ratified by death, by his death. Therefore, death cannot end them. And the only way you can make vows to love somebody not knowing what the future will bring for you or for them is to know that the one who's made those kind of vows to you is not thwarted by circumstances, by anything. And that's what I would say about this passage. You see, Paul writes not just as a guy. Very clearly in chapter 1 of Galatians, he's writing as an apostle, as one who knows that God has given him words, divinely inspired words. In other words, he speaks for God when he speaks to these Galatians. And Paul did not come up with this idea of groaning until Christ be formed in them out of the blue. Actually, this image first appears in the Old Testament. There are places where God himself describes himself as one who is groaning. Paul's not just saying, hey, I'm your friend and I'm groaning for you. No, he first heard from God's word that God himself is groaning. This is why, this is why Christ endured the cross. He could have ended his groaning on the cross by getting down off the cross. He says himself, I could call down legions of angels and all of this would be over. But Christ did not back down from his groaning on the cross because he himself is groaning until Christ be formed in you. Do you understand that? God is groaning even now. In Isaiah 63, 9, God says this about his people. In all their distress, he too is distressed. Do you think of God as distressed? And even, even more important, Isaiah 42, 14. God says this. This is God speaking. For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, I pant. Paul didn't come up with this image out of the blue. God had already said it about his people and about his kingdom. God himself is one who groans. Paul himself heard Jesus after the resurrection 
Paul was going down the road to Damascus to kill Christians. He's struck by a light and he hears the voice of Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's name before he got converted. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Mind you, Jesus is not on the cross at this point. He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he still describes himself as being persecuted. But who's being persecuted? Well, it's his people, his church. But he so radically identifies with his church, with his body, that he says, you're persecuting me. Do you think Christ is just up in heaven smiling? It's not what he says here. And the Holy Spirit is groaning. Romans chapter 8. Paul says that the whole creation is groaning. He says we're groaning. And he says that the Spirit is groaning with groans too deep for words. So there you have it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit all groaning for Christ to be formed in you. It seems that Paul was quite convinced that God is the one who's groaning. Now this is hugely important. Because the question is, when difficult things come into your life, do you hear God groaning for Christ to be formed in you? Do you believe that that's what's going on? Or do you simply groan for things to end? Like that last hymn that we sang. Do you understand? Like he's still struggling. He cries out to God, and God said, this is how I answer prayers of faith. That doesn't mean that the groaning goes away. But there's a a big picture context that helps. I pray that we would learn to groan with God for the things that God groans for, for Christ to be formed in us. Do we groan with him or do we just groan at him? It has everything to do with whether you believe he loves you and whether you believe he himself is groaning for you. If you believe that God is up there just sort of like like Santa Claus, like checking his list to see who's naughty and nice, like this is craziness. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one who groans. Groans. I think we refuse to groan for others because we're so addicted to our own comfort and the approval of others. But remember, Jesus gave up his comfort. He gave up his comfort. And he gave up his father's approval. When he hung on a cross, you know, he didn't cry out when they beat him. He didn't cry out when they put the thorns on his head. You remember when he cried? When he cried is when he felt his father's displeasure for the first time ever. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what was unbearable to him. And now you understand why he endured that. It wasn't just so that you could come to RUF. It's so that Christ could be formed in you. Do you groan for that? Right? And why would he do that for us? I mean, we're so petty and ungrateful. Some little difficulty comes into our life and we just groan and whine about it. We give up on people as soon as they annoy us. We find other friends. Never mind how we treat them if they really betray us. Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. His disciples fell asleep when he said, all I want you to do is stay up with me as I endure this night 
kept falling asleep. And he still from the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Isn't that amazing? And God is still groaning. He's still groaning. Now, he could end his groaning. He could either make us perfect right now, or he could wipe us off the planet. But he doesn't do that. God is groaning until Christ would be formed in us. I don't quite understand that. But then I couldn't worship a God I could understand. You know, pregnancy, knowing that you're headed for excruciating pain, has got to be a very strange experience. But imagine, that's what Jesus' whole life was like. Even from the very beginning of his public ministry, the cross is always on his mind. You remember that weird story in John chapter 2 where he's at this wedding and they run out of wine and his mother comes and tells him, hey, they've run out of wine. Do you remember what he says to her? The, the NIV and other modern translations say, dear woman, why do you bother me? What he actually says is, woman, don't bother me. He's, he's on the verge of being rude. There's no dear in the Greek text. The English translations put that in to soften it because it seems strange for Jesus to just call his mother woman. But that's what he says. And then he doesn't, he says, don't bother me. My hour is not yet. It says hour, not time in the Greek. In John's gospel, hour always refers to the cross. Every time Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking about the cross. So here he is in the middle of this wedding, all this joy going around, and he's thinking about his death. Every weird thing that Jesus does or says is usually attributable to the fact that he's thinking about his death and nobody else is. Like when he tells Peter to get behind him, Satan. It's because he's thinking about going to the cross and nobody else is. And nobody can imagine that that's where he's going or is going to do that. Right? Jesus, his whole life, was thinking about this. The father says he's like a woman screaming in labor pains in Isaiah, and the Spirit's groaning. The whole Godhead is groaning until Christ be formed in you. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Do you groan for others? Do you groan for yourself? Do you even groan for yourself to want to groan for others? That's what God's groaning for. You know, the church is not a hospital. Sometimes you hear the church referred to as a hospital. It's really, more particularly, a maternity ward. There's a lot of groaning and labor pains going on. Open your ears. I pray that you would open your ears to hear his groaning, and that so would I. Because listen, if seeing the smile of God through the eyes of faith brings peace, and it does, then why would we want to hear the groaning of God with the ears of faith? Well, my prayer is it would engage us in his mission. If you can hear the groaning of God for all things to be made right, it changes everything. Listen, ministering to people and not knowing what to do, being perplexed is a disaster if it rests on you. It is. And you won't stay in ministry and you won't stay loving people for very long. You'll sort of shrink back to just trying to get along. But if God is groaning for Christ to be formed in other people, and you can hear it, then it will keep you in it. God is at work. He's groaning for you to be different. He's groaning for me to be different. And that changes everything because he's promised that the work he began, he will complete in spite of the groaning, in spite of the perplexment. Let's pray.